Hi, everybody. I'm Anne Arundel County State's Attorney Wes Adams. Welcome to our inaugural podcast of Docket by the Bay. I have the honor today of having our Anne Arundel County Police Chief Timothy Altamari, my partner in fighting crime. Chief, welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, I want to take a little bit of time to introduce the community to the partnership that we've been able to put together over the last couple of years. And I think nothing examines that or really nothing shows that better than the wiretap that we were able to accomplish in 2015. So Chief, what I'd really like for you to explain to folks, our Anne Arundel County residents, is what, what is a wire? What's a wiretap? Great question. So a wiretap is an investigation in which the investigators approach uh, prosecutors because all the normal strategies that we use, the more day-to-day -day mundane strategies that we use to try to catch drug dealers um, or other or people who are doing other certain crimes uh, out in the communities, but mostly drug dealers uh, in my experience. Everything we've tried up to the date where we approach our partners in the prosecutor's office really has been exhausted. So that's the, the term that um, we use with uh, the criminal justice system. We've exhausted every other effort that we could normally bring to bear to bring a drug dealer to justice. And we have to uh, jointly uh, with prosecutors go before a judge and swear to a very long set of facts uh, about what we've done to try to catch a drug dealer through normal means and explain to the judge why we need to tap that person's phones. Um, it's a very in-depth process. It's a very long process. Um, and it is not one that is easy to do, which is why, if you think about historically in the county, this was our first state wiretap, um, state as opposed to federal courts, in the long memory of anybody I know in Anne Arundel County. So, and you sort of mentioned what I was going to talk about. Can we get these very easily? Oh, no, they're extremely hard to get. <laughs> and when we get them, uh, you know, what's, what's really unique about the wiretap? I mean, you know, most people know that they hear it. They may have seen, like, the wire up in Baltimore City. But you know, when we get these taps, we're really getting inside of the organization or the group of people. Or, I mean, it, it's a pretty deep investigative tool absolutely i think it it might be the deepest that's available to to um, most law enforcement if you think about having access to the most private moments somebody has and that's why it's so hard to get a wiretap order from a from a judge if you think about how people interact when their guard is down and they don't think um the police are on them if they're bad guys or gals, uh, we get access to all those communications. We get access to people ordering vast quantities of drugs on the phone. We get access to, um, on occasion, people ordering violent acts to occur. And then that creates a whole new challenge because we have to scramble to keep somebody from becoming the victim of a violent act when we overhear things like that. So, yeah, we, we really um, get to get to the meat and potatoes of the business of, of the folks destroying our communities bit by bit. And 
It's important to note, though, that there's extremely strict limitations on what we're allowed to well, listen to. And then so. that was what I was going to ask you. Does that mean we have unfettered, you know, like just sort of unrestrained access to everything that someone's saying? No, it, we, you know, we're, we're policing the freest of, the best of free societies in the history of the world. So there's, there's really strict limitations that, that we have to operate under. We have um, a very short window of time. Um, to listen to a call to decide whether that call is pertinent to our investigation or not pertinent to our investigation. And if it is not pertinent to our investigation, the monitoring has to stop and we've got to stop listening. So really, when we get into these wires, we're really only listening for bad, for the criminal acts. We're not, we don't care about personal life. We're not looking at any sort of protected communication. We're looking for what's going on with the criminal behavior. Absolutely. And we have to show the judge at the end of this thing that that we held ourselves to those limits. So, um, you know, the judges look very carefully at what we've listened to and, and how much we've held ourselves to that standard. And if we're not meeting that standard, the judges are going to smack us. All right. And so, Chief, you mentioned that we ran, we were able to put together, I think, the first wiretap. You called it the first state wiretap in at least as long as you can remember. And you've been now on the force for god what 20, 20 years 25 25, 25 years five years in so, the county and uh, then that my uh, observation there goes back to the recollections of the people who've been retired for 20 or 30 years too nobody remembers a state wiretap in Anne Arundel county and you had mentioned earlier about how these things sort of take on a life of their own so where we started wasn't where we ended was it oh that's a no that's a great point and i think that's pretty standard of this type of investigation you know you you identify one target, and I use the word target in the best possible sense of the word. Right. The person has engaged in activity that makes us target that person. Um, so we start off figuring out who the drug dealer is, and as we do investigations, we identify more folks in the spider web of drug dealers, and then when you get up on a wiretap, you identify a lot more folks um, that are involved in the activity, and then that activity or your investigative activity grows legs and jumps across jurisdictional bounds. So you have to be very quick and very fluid in um, how you bring other law enforcement partners into the process and, and get them uh, briefed on the activity going on in their areas. And then you have to talk to uh, all levels of law enforcement, state, local, and federal, to make sure everybody's on board and everybody's playing well together and um, if you don't do those things, it becomes a nightmare, both for the investigation and, and the outcome that we bring, you know, the state's attorney's office for prosecution. And then more importantly to me, it becomes very dangerous for the cops out there doing police work. So I know for us as, as prosecutors, we talk about like the CSI effect. And, you know, I know you guys as police, what we see on the TV is this almost magical idea of investigation where, you know, in 45 minutes, a crime occurs. You guys can solve it with, I always say, the magic cat hair. You know, you walk into a 6,000-square-foot garage and you pick up the magic cat hair and you bring it back and all of a sudden you're like, oh, the bad guy did it. But is that really how the, I mean, can you talk about the type of time and resources and effort that we have to put in to make one of these investigations work? That's a great point. Uh, you know, cops do get frustrated with the CSI effect. Nothing happens in an hour. We, we barely get to talk about something in an hour. Um, so this investigation, as a good uh, example, was thousands of hours of work by 
20, 30, 40 people um, over the space of, as we've, we've talked about, um, eight, nine months from inception to uh, when we brought it to a close with our search warrants and arrests. And, Chief, drug dealers don't work at, like, regular nine to five hours, do they? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, we're talking about two o'clock in the morning. We're talking about four o'clock in the morning. Um, we're talking about hours and hours of waiting because uh, drug dealers don't keep time like Wall Street bankers do. Uh, there is no um, set period of time where business gets done. So we've got to be ready to, sp to spin up and get a surveillance operation going based upon what we're hearing um, with very short notice and then We've got to be ready to do that 24-7, 365 for the entire eight months that we're talking about in this investigation. It's a monumental effort for, I mean, the amount of manpower that you guys have to put in just to be able to support this investigation has to be crippling in some effect to day-to-day -day operations for things. That's a, it's a great way to say it because it is. You know, when, when we entered into this investigation with the state's attorney's office, most other cases in Anne Arundel County stopped getting investigated for a while. Uh, to bring this to fruition because um, you've got to have people listening and it's got to be multiple people. It can't be one person 24-7. And, and it really does put a crimp on um, what else we can do while we're doing that. All right, so now that I think everybody has an idea of what it takes just to put a wire together, when we got up into this wire, what was the result of it? So I, I think it's it's safe to say that this was legendary for us i mean this case will be um the case that people talk about for decades in Anne Arundel county particularly but when you talk about logistics as it goes uh into trying to put this thing to bed think about trying to serve the seven search warrants we served just in Anne Arundel county um the multiple people that have to be present at each location to safely affect a tactical entry to conduct a search warrant to keep uh, the bad guys safe as well as the cops safe uh, serving the search warrant think about the logistics of evidence handling and how many people we have to be uh, ready to have on hand to search think about chain of custody and the problems that go into that if you don't do it right uh, we have to have everything documented from step a to step z um, so, yeah, seven search warrants is a stretch for us. We certainly couldn't have done it by ourselves. We had uh, law enforcement partners from a bunch of agencies, federal alphabet agencies, state and local agencies, helping out with that. So on the day in question when we put this thing to bed, which I think was October 14th of 15, we did seven search and seizure warrants in Anne Arundel County. We seized three kilograms, so that's 2.2 pounds per Kilogram of heroin times three, six, six, nine, ten plus twelve pounds of of heroin, um, another kilogram and a half of cocaine, a bunch of loose capsules of heroin, um, and then the street value of this stuff we've put uh, all told in the area of six hundred grand. But I got to tell you, that's a very low estimate if you parcel that out. Uh, that amount of drugs out onto the street in jail caps and baggies, I think you're well over a million dollars there in street value. And we took 12 guns. We found 
a uh, large press for pressing kilograms back together once they've been adulterated, uh, as drug dealers tend to do. Um, we took $90,000 in cash, $100,000 in jewelry, three vehicles worth about $200,000, and then all kinds of what we call um, uh, paraphernalia that's um, kind of in Disha of having sold as opposed to just using heroin. So think about all the, the items of evidence, which probably entered into the thousand items of evidence range uh, with these seven search warrants. And it's a lot of work. Oh, it's a ton of work. And, and you, know, you mentioned a little bit before about trying to coordinate the search warrants to keep people safe and stuff like that. One of those, one of the warrants that we executed, I mean, the, the guy was hunkered down inside of a, a, a tactically strong position uh, to, I mean, basically protect the, the drugs that they had to protect himself and to put himself in a place to really do some damage to, to somebody if, if they, came up, they came up on him. Yeah, and that's not atypical, right? Drug dealers have a lot of money and a lot of product that's worth money sitting around, so they tend to do things that make it dangerous for the cops, um, both on purpose because they want to hurt the cops if the cops are coming, and truthfully, to protect themselves from other drug dealers because this isn't a, a business of gentlemen and gentleladies. It's a business of the eaters of hearts and souls. And if you enter into a, a business like this, uh, hurting other human beings doesn't create a blip on your radar screen at all. No, I agree. And, and you know, when we, when we sit down here and, and we talk about taking down this kind of this volume of, of drugs, this volume of guns, um, what kind of effect, what kind of immediate impact does it have in, in the area when we do that? So in the short term, we create, we create a, an impact, right? Um, gets a little harder to get drugs off the street. Um, you got to go a little further afield to find uh, your hookup to, to get high if, if you're using. But that's short term. And where there's a profit margin, there's always going to be drug dealers. Um, and so in this case, I think uh, we've talked before, we've had some perverse, unanticipated effects, you know. These, this organization wasn't overloading their product with fentanyl, um, and the next up started to load their product on the street with more fentanyl, and so we saw uh, overdose numbers actually spike as a result of it. Um, and none of that means we're not going to keep going after drug dealers. We've got to do it. Um, you know, I've gotten frustrated in the past four, five, eight years that our national conversation has been about drug dealers not being bad people. Uh, drug <laughs> dealers are the worst people. Um, so it's our job to go to go get them and take them off the street. And then we've got to be ready to roll with whatever punch the free market throws at us after we do what we did in this case. But And I think, though, what you just identified there really talks about, especially you and I, but how we've coordinated approaches not just on – the bad guys, but there's a second half of this equation that I don't know if it always gets spoken about when we talk about law enforcement, and that's really the safe stations or the the rehabilitation side of this. Sure. Because, chief, you just mentioned right there where there's a profit margin, you know, somebody's going to buy drugs, so we can take the bad guy off the street, but as long as there's a demand there, someone else is going to come back in 
to, to fulfill that demand. Yeah, that's our that's our damnable dichotomy. I think that we deal with all the time. I, you know, it, it's why handcuffs alone aren't going to solve the problem. We we all know that. Um, I think the police have come a long way in realizing that our efforts have to be more than just putting handcuffs on bad guys. Um, we believe very strongly in this county that people need to be held accountable for their actions when their actions negatively impact other people. Sure. Um, but when drugs are the root cause, we have gotten a lot better, both um, certainly in, in the court systems and in your office. But even with the cops at realizing it's a three-pronged fight, you know, prevention and education are every bit as important as enforcement. And the way that we say it all the time is we've knocked down all the walls. You know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, the cops weren't talking to treatment providers and, right. and um, educators and things like that. And, in fact, some of those folks viewed us as the enemy. So I'm very proud of, of the work we've all done under the county executive to knock those walls down, to start working together. You know, my cops are out every day on prevention and education pieces of this puzzle. You And, and you even came up with a, a letter and stuff that you're handing out to anybody who's in addiction, right? Yeah, that's true. I, we figure... You know, day to day, about 80 to 85 percent of our crime is driven by drugs in one way, shape or form. Um, so everybody who gets arrested in Anne Arundel County gets a letter from the county executive and I basically pleading with them uh, that if drugs are the root cause of why they've had a negative interaction with police that day, that they take the help we're offering. And it has our warm line number right on the letter so that whether it's that night or the next day, they might look at that piece of paper and say, okay, it's time for me to get some help and make the call. Absolutely. All right, so let's get back to, you know, a little bit of field from where we started with the wire, but I think it's important to know that not only are we taking the bad guys off the street, but, you know, we're helping those that can that we can help. Um, I think you, you mentioned, you know, we talked about, look, we're good for giving a second chance, but if there's no accountability, then the second chance is aren't second chances it's just a course of business we got to have some accountability and in and in this case these guys got some accountability yeah so, so pleasantly pleasantly surprised with the accountability yeah we actually did all right we uh fernandez the guy that ran this whole operation and and we were able to figure that out through the wire which is a great part of the wire it can give give the people give our citizens an idea of how we can learn about structure from listening in on these conversations and how it sort of helps us to see what the organization's about. Sure. Okay. So just like any other organization made up of human beings, a pecking order, a hierarchy develops amongst drug trafficking organizations or, or the members of drug trafficking organizations. So for instance, in this case, um, as you start to look at Mr. Fernandez uh, as a target, you know he's a drug dealer. And then as you start to surveil him and, uh, and then once you get your, your warrant to go up on the wire, you start to really put puzzle pieces together about, wow, this guy's got a lot more juice than we might have thought at the start of it. So when you look at... And he's a pretty sophisticated... I mean, when we talk about... I, I think the common image that a lot of us have in drug dealers... Is he the guy on the street corner that's slinging the, the gel cap? Yeah, that, no, he's 10 levels above it, right? right. And, and I got to tell you that the wire shows you, again, that kind of while the street corner stuff still exists, the game has changed in, in quantum ways in the past 10, 15 years. Um, 
cell phones have made it possible for people to connect without having to stand on a street corner um, all night long to, to encounter potential customers. So the game has really changed, and um, listening to people on phones, you really learn how much that game has changed, and then you learn how, how far the spider web spreads in organizations like this. Mr. Fernandez was going up to New York and um, had connections um, in New York City, had connections in Philly, had connections uh, everywhere. And the beauty of, of this thing is that we do look at the levels and, and you're able to hold Mr. Fernandez accountable for being a drug kingpin at the end of a wire, right? So um, he's not going to get the normal three- to five-year sentence that a, uh, a kid who um, who's out trying to make money to survive would get. Um, he's going to go away for a long time, and I think with, with Mr. Fernandez, it ended up being um, a 40-year sentence, but he, he had to serve 25. So that's a pretty good sentence in Anne Arundel County. Well, it's an awesome sentence, and and – and it wasn't just Mr. Fernandez, but the, his administrative level, the next two guys down, they both got sat down for a good 15, 18 years as well. Yeah, and those are, those are heavy sentences yeah. in the drug game. I mean, you, you look at uh, the, the day-to-day stuff that you see in a career like mine spanning 25 years. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen folks go to jail for a weekend. I've seen folks not go to jail i've seen folks um do a quarter of the time they're supposed to do so uh, when you when you look at a a situation like this it becomes a little gratifying after fighting the fight for so long well and and i know that that's a big deal you obviously you've talked about the amount of effort that you guys put in um seeing a kind of result like this at least it, it validates a lot of the effort it really validates the the amount of work that goes into catching these kind of bad guys. It absolutely does, and it energizes you for the next fight. Which, uh, so let's talk about the next fight. What can we do next, Chief? I mean, where do we where do we go? So this is this is the conversation that that you and I have constantly. Is yeah. What <laughs> what we're going to do next, and where we're going next, and we're putting a lot of heroin dealers in Anne Arundel County behind bars. Um, but this is a this is a legendary case. So. Right. We are day-to-day working on putting the folks who sold drugs that caused fatal overdoses um, away for a while. Um, We have some challenges, as as I'm not telling you anything, with with that in Maryland. We've begged our legislature for some help. Um, I've gotten gotten some good feedback from a couple, but it certainly doesn't seem that it's grown legs in our legislature this year for them to— um, help us out with a with a specific charge for dealing drugs that caused a fatal overdose. Um, that charge exists at the federal level, but I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's a lot harder to put a federal case together than it is to, a state case together because right. the federal system has the luxury of cherry picking. Um, so, yeah, we need some help on that. We're going to continue that fight. Um, we're going to continue to try to educate our legislature as to how bad this problem is. Um, we're going to continue to educate our general citizenry as, as a part of that um, education prong of our, our efforts. And um, we're going to stay involved with everything involved in the prevention end of this thing also. So um, we're going to do all that good work. And today, this moment, right now, we're looking for the next Mr. Fernandez. Chief, I want to th- 
thank you for taking your time and, and helping us talk to our Anne Arundel County citizens about you know, the great law enforcement efforts. I really appreciate you coming out here today. Um, and I want to thank everybody for taking their time to listen to us here on Docket by the Bay. Tune in to our next episode where we're going to be talking about the Anne Arundel County Safe Stations Program. It's a unique program around the country, and I hope you'll take some time to come in and listen.